The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to tonight's show. We've got a fantastic one scheduled for you tonight with two guests. We're going to split the show up a little bit. In the first part of the show, we're going to talk with, with Dr. Michael Bussler. He's a professor of finance with Stockton University. We're going to be talking about the fact that a very large percentage of millennials are living with their parents. Why is this happening? What is it doing to uh, the way we live, the way the parents of those relationships live? What is it doing to the economy? And then we're going to talk a little bit about the economy in general, because things are changing. And Dr. Michael Bussler is an expert on it, and we will be talking about that with him. And then in the later part of the program, we'll have um, David Corey, who's an author, and he's releasing a new book called Illyria. I have trouble saying it. It's Illyria, and it's a supernatural thriller. He'll tell us what it's all about, and it draws from, um, you know, from real-world supernatural influences. And we'll find out what those influences are. So two guests on the program tonight, two very different subjects, but we'll have a great time. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. Hit the subscribe button. Also go to our Twitch channel, and it's the same thing. It's JV Johnson. Find it there, and you can follow for free. If you want to subscribe, I recommend you doing it. do it by linking your Amazon Prime account, because that way there's no fee for the subscription. Otherwise, there's a small fee, but that fee entitles you to some special emotes also ad free viewing and there's some other benefits as well and of course the support helps our channel so we appreciate that too and a third way you can support us if you're so inclined and a lot of, of our great listeners have done this go to uh, go to our patreon page and pledge a small amount to support us on a monthly basis that helps us pay for the cost of putting the show together you know slick eddie doesn't come cheap and uh we uh, that support helps us uh, do more things here so we appreciate that as well go to uh, patreon and just search for joha j-o-h-a-w very easy to find that as well and we appreciate anybody who chooses to support us there also thank you to everybody in our chat rooms those rooms are fun they fill up quickly we love seeing everybody in there and i big hello and a big wave big hello and a big wave to everybody Good to see everybody here. We'll go to break and we'll get our first guest on the phone. Again, our first guest of the night will be Dr. Michael Bussler. We'll be talking about millennials and the economy. That's the first part of our program right here on Beyond Reality. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJTaps. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the program. I'm your host, JV. We've got a really interesting discussion for you tonight. Excited to have this, particularly in a time when things are so uh, unsettled, I'll have to say. Whether you're talking about politics, whether you're talking about health care or maybe more health care crises, or you're talking about just geopolitics, or maybe we're talking about the weather. It doesn't matter. It's all unsettled. Our guest in the first part of the program is Dr. Michael Bussler. He's a professor of finance at Stockton University. 
and was a fellow at the William J. Hughes Center for Public Policy from 2008 to 2012. His research on performance modeling, public policy analysis, and consumer behavior has been published in 15 different academic journals and presented in 14 countries, from the U.S. to the Middle East. We're really honored to have him here. Uh, Michael, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me, J.V. It's my pleasure to be here. So we've got a lot of really, really strange things happening. I don't know if we can make sense of it at all, at all here tonight, but maybe we can give it a shot. And chief among which, and I know this from firsthand because I've got two kids who both um, have graduated college and are still living home. As a parent, I don't know if I mind that or not. I feel like it's kind of my responsibility in a way. But what's going on nationally? What are we seeing here? Yeah, so a little bit of a historical perspective on this. Um, in 1960, uh, approximately 30% of um, people between the ages of 18 and 29, about 60, uh, about 30% lived with their parents. That number jumped up to about 40% in the early 2000s. Now, m- almost all of that increase was due to um, increases in college enrollments because even if you live at a dormitory, you're still counted as living at, at, at home. So right. the increase up to 30 to 40 percent was really because more people were going to college. The disturbing part was um, the recession in 2008 and 9 hit uh, was very difficult, particularly on younger people, even yeah, young college graduates. And um, by 2010, that 40 percent number had climbed to 44 percent. Now, we'd expect it to go down after a recession, except we made it easier for young people to live at home. Now, why do I say that? Historically, uh, when somebody turns 18, they're essentially an adult. They can't be covered by their parents' health insurance plan unless they're a student, and then they can go till they're 21 or 22. Um, But when the Affordable Care Act was passed, they said young people can stay on their parents' plans until they're 26 years old. So that made it a little bit easier for them to stay at home. They didn't have to worry about covering their uh, health insurance bills. And because the recovery from the uh, 08, 09 recession was so slow, was so difficult for young people, college-educated too, to, to find jobs, uh, and because it was a little easier to be able to stay home, that number stayed uh, relatively high. Then, uh, after, now that the pandemic uh, has hit, that number had actually climbed to 47 oh, percent wow. right before right before the pandemic. It gets worse, uh, and um, the recession that came as a result of the pandemic hit um, industries like the hospitality industry, tourism, cruise ships. Uh, amusement parks, things like that, hit them especially hard. A lot of young people uh, employed in those industries. So they couldn't find jobs. They moved home. Now, according to Pew Research, now 52% of the 18 to 29-year-olds live at at, at home and rely on their parents. Uh, the hope is that once the economy, and it's already started to recover. We're in a very deep but short-lived recession. Uh, the recovery has been uh, a V-shape. It's been coming back very quickly. May, June, July, August saw huge numbers of jobs uh, 
created. We're still way down from where we were, but we got about half the jobs back in about four months, nearly 11 million. The, the hope is that as the economy continues to uh, Im- improve, that m- these young people will not uh, get so used to living it at home and having somebody else take care of them. Rather, they'll come back into the uh, workforce and become more independent, move out on their own, and with all due respect to them, it's simply time to grow up and become an adult. And as long as there's opportunity for them to do that, uh, the hope is that they'll go back and uh, be on their own again. Well, let me ask you, you mentioned historical perspective. Let's take it back a little bit further, because if my research means anything, and when I say research, I'm talking about when I watched the Waltons as a kid. Um, you know, family units all kind of lived together. That was that that was not necessarily uncommon Back right. maybe when we were more an agrarian society, I, I'm not sure how far. How did it change from that period? Well, uh, going back there, uh, in many households, you had multi generational families. In other words, the the family was there. Oftentimes, the grandparents uh, lived there too. Um, that's changed uh, a lot, also, uh, mostly because as people get older, they still tend to be very independent. Right. Um, I, I think we've all done well over time, or most of us have done well over time. And as you get older, we prepared more for our retirement, uh, mostly because we didn't want our children to feel that uh, we were a burden to them. And you know that that brings up the point. Um, the, the, the way uh, things progress, as a child, you're dependent on your parents. I mean, and you have to be. Right. Once you get into your 20s, though, it's time to become an adult and take care of yourself. And in fact, as you progress through adulthood, not only will you take, on your, take care of yourself, you're going to start taking on some other people that you have to take care of, like a, a family. Um, I believe the sooner that we can get the uh, kids out into the workforce, being independent, taking care of themselves, I think the better off it'll be for them and also for the uh, economy as a whole. And I'm not going to going to admit guilt here. Um, I may or may not be part of this problem. But one thing I can say as, a, as an observer is that parents seem much more reluctant to let their children grow up, and they may shelter them longer. Is this also a symptom of that problem? Yes, it is. Uh, when they're younger, we use the term uh, helicopter parents right. that uh, watched over their kids. Well, it's time for the parents. Uh, you know, we used to use the expression tough love. You know, mm-hmm. it's time for the parents, as much as we love our children, we want to make sure they're taken care of. And we all have a natural instinct to want to take care of them really as long as we uh, have to. But it really benefits them and you uh, for them to, when they reach adulthood, to ex- uh, accept the responsibilities of being an, an adult and move on. Um, I know it's a hard thing for a lot of parents. I remember when my uh, uh, kids just left for, for college. It was even hard letting them go there. You know, we have a, a, a very close family. But once they got out of college, um, they were certainly welcome here if they had a problem. But I encouraged them to make sure you get a job, even if it's not the best job, even if it's not the one that you thought, this is what I'm going to college for, I want this. Sometimes you have to start out a little bit lower and sort of work your way up. If the economy's good, maybe that won't happen to you. If the economy is not so good, you may have to accept something um, a little below where you anticipated. But at least you're out there into the system. You're taking care of yourself. You're assuming individual responsibility. 
that ends up benefiting not only you, but also the people who potentially would have to take care of you. What is So what we're seeing here basically is partially a result of the participation trophy generation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and uh, look, look <laughs> the, the real world is a little different than that. Uh, Some people, it's very competitive out there. That's why you try to get the best education you can and try to learn as much as you can and be able to contribute as much as you can, because it is a competitive world. And with a competitive world, some people will end up being very successful and some people will end up being not so successful. Um, I mean, that's just the the way the world is. The sooner I think you learn some of those lessons in life, Uh, the better it is for you and also the better it is for your parents. Michael, what about technology? And and here's another anecdote. Uh, My son um, is 24 years old. He can get anywhere on the planet with his phone. He punches it into the phone and it gets him where he wants to go, but he has no idea where he is. He has no idea which direction he's headed. He just does what the phone tells him to do. I don't believe he's equipped when I was his age, I'd driven through Europe three times already. Uh, you know, this, there's a difference yeah. here because they're so reliant on their devices. Yeah, you, you know, the devices are supposed to uh, be an aid to you to assist you to do things uh, quicker. The, the beauty with the devices is you, you, you really have access to so much information. Um, and what you, the, the idea was that you take that information, use it, and it should make your life easier in whatever you want to do. You can't rely on those devices uh, for your entire life. It's simply an addition to the knowledge that you have. It's an extra tool to, to use that will help you reach your goals, but it is not uh, the primary focus, and it is not what you should uh, completely rely on uh, to get you through life. I agree, and I think that's also got to be a function of parents to make sure yeah. that their children aren't relying on those devices for everything. And that's a hard that's a hard prospect unto itself. So let's talk about what we're seeing right now. We've we've got a, a an unprecedented at least in 100 years uh health crisis underway. We've got yeah. people screaming about um in some cases the end of the world due to climate change. We've got wildfires consuming the west coast. We've got hurricanes uh bashing the gulf coast. We've got terrorism around the world. I mean there's a lot of things for kids to be afraid of. Is that also making them want to shelter in place a little bit? Um I don't know for sure and I haven't seen any uh scientific studies, but I would suspect uh, that um, somebody's young, um, you, you try to uh, prepare yourself as well as you can, mm-hmm. but you, you simply don't know that much when you're young. So when uh, ter- uh, bad things are happening around you, it tends to have more of a negative impact uh, on your thinking. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, the state of the world today and all the confusion is uh, adding some fear uh, to some of these younger people. And when you have fear, you want to look for some place where you feel very secure. And there's no place that most people feel more, more secure than with their parents in their parents' house. So I would agree with you that uh, this is adding to that. Um, the hope is that the hurricanes stop and the fires eventually go out. Um, the political uh, fighting, I don't know if that's going to end relatively <laughs> uh, soon, but um 
some of these things w- will end. Uh, the virus will eventually end. I don't know when it, that'll be, uh, but the virus will eventually end. We'll eventually get that under um, control. And the hope is really that uh, people become stronger as a result of having lived through uh, everything that we're living through now. I know a lot of people, because they've been quarantined for a while, and when we shut down the uh, economy, they're they're really suffering from anxiety and depression. Uh, so it's a difficult thing, but let's get through this thing. And when things um, return to as close to normal as we can can get them, and you know we can all take a deep breath and say, "Boy, this was an awful thing," but you know what? We got through it. Um, so we'll use it as a learning experience. Um, it makes us a little bit stronger, and that's good for us going forward. So let's, and you touched on this a little bit in your opening uh, comments, but let's talk about a uh, fast forwarding here just a little bit. As you said, the virus is going to be contained one way or another, whether it runs its course or we have a vaccine that, that prevents it from spreading. One way or another, it's going to be handled. Um, and the economy, which I want to get into some detail uh, after this about the economy, but just on the surface, will improve. It's going to happen. These things will fix them, not necessarily fix themselves, but they will be fixed. Do, do you have forecasts and trends as to whether or not this um, uh, idea that uh, millennials will continue to live at home, uh, will will that percentage continue to increase? Do you see it decreasing? Do you see, see it staying the same? And And do we have any idea why it does whatever it's going to do? It's a little bit hard to tell, um, mostly for uh, a few reasons. Um, so um, a lot of these young pe- younger people are getting this, uh, have this feeling of entitlement. You, you know, we're entitled to a good job. We're entitled to have these things. Uh, we just should get them. Now, um, we have a presidential election coming up, um, the Democratic Party um, tends to uh, feed this entitlement. In fact, uh, they've talked about uh, saying, look, you're entitled to free health care. Uh, if you can't afford it, you're entitled to go to college for free. Uh, some of them are even advocating uh, when you turn 18, you're entitled to a minimum basic income, uh, whether you're working or not. The government should give you that. So if that kind of philosophy is put forth by government, that the government will take care of you, then you're going to see more people saying, well, if that's the case, there's no sense in me uh, worrying about taking care of myself, accepting my uh, responsibility for myself. Somebody's taking care of me. Uh, If, on the other hand, uh, President Trump wins uh, and he's not going to give you free health care, he's going to try to work out something, I think, where uh, even the the, uh, lowest of income people can have some health care, but he's not going to set up a system where you can stay with your parents till you're uh, 26. Um, he recognizes that on a local level, you get uh, education from K to uh, 12th grade. Once you go to to uh, college, the government will lend you money to do that, but you have to be responsible for that. And in terms of uh, uh, basic universal uh, income, there's no way that that's going to happen. President Trump will not take income away from people that have earned it and give it to people who uh, haven't earned it and who really don't need it. And that's what uh, this universal basic income says. They're going to get $1,000 a month. Well, where's the government get that money? They have to, they only, they don't have any money. They only get what they uh, get from taxpayers. So they're going to have to raise taxes on uh, 
eventually the middle class and the wealthy to pay for uh, all this. President Trump won't won't do that. So some of the um, answer to the question depends on what happens and what party uh, is in power uh, after all this is over. Uh there's been discussion when it comes to this universal income idea that as more and more jobs are automated or given to AI or robots, that uh, you know the the number of jobs available are ultimately going to dwindle to a point where there's going to be either massive unemployment or we'll have to look at this idea of a universal income um, because there won't be those jobs available for people. Have you looked at that at all? Yeah, I don't agree with that at uh, at, at all. Um, this automation and technology and robotics, uh, they'll replace jobs that can be done as efficiently by machines or more efficiently by machines than they can by people. So what that means is somebody who has machines to work with can produce more output. So I think adding all this technology, economists will say you have a little bit of a structural unemployment problem in the short term. What does that mean? It means when um, the machines take away jobs, some people will be unemployed, but they won't have the skills necessary to fill the new jobs, which will be created by the growth that's uh, a result of adding all this technology. Uh, So I think in the long run, education is, is the key. Uh, you, you can't simply say, I'm going to uh, get a job. You know, my uh, my father got a job in the factory, and he worked in the factory his um, entire life, and it was a nice, secure uh, job for us. That kind of thing will not continue into the future. Those factory jobs will all be done by robots. You have to figure out another way to use the technology and be able to make a contribution to the economy. And if everybody figures that out uh, through education, Primarily, if everybody figures that out, we're going to have tremendous growth in the economy. You know, the the uh, the farm in industry uh, in less than developed countries, you have 90, 95 percent of the population who doesn't have any tools to work with working in agriculture. As you continue to automate uh, and bring machines in, you need less and less people. Eventually, you hope to get to where the U.S. is. Uh, we produce about 30 percent of the food that's produced in the world, we use only 3% of our population to do that because they're so productive, because they have these machines to um, work with. So I think even if there's some short-term problems with structural unemployment that we need to deal with, in the long term, the more automation and the more input from capital you get, the more productive labor becomes, and that's going to benefit everybody. Well, I, and you, you make an excellent point, and I was going to also point out that we've been down this road uh, throughout the entire Industrial Revolution. Every time yeah. a new device came along that may replace a couple of workers, you know, these same fears would arise. But what it turns out yeah. happening is that people become more productive, the economy grows, and, and those that were displaced find other ways to earn an income, and probably a better income than they'd had previously. Exactly. You know, they were afraid when computers came out. When I started working, uh, if I wanted, I worked, when I worked in a, an office, if you wanted a letter type, you gave it to a That's secretary right. in a typing <laughs> pool, and people were employed there. So, well, if you have personal computers, there won't be any secretaries, any typists around. And that's true. They're doing something else. But now, as an individual, I write my own emails, I write my own 
uh, memos, and I'm much more efficient. And that's what technology does. And I have to ask you, and this, I know you're a professor at Stockton University, so I might be walking a fine line here, but what are your thoughts on this notion that everyone should go to college? Everyone is not, uh, college is not a good fit for, for everyone. However, everyone needs something after high school to be able to contribute to the economy. Look, there, there, there are many people that college just, just doesn't work for. However, they're good at doing other things. Look, we're always going to need uh, people to build things for us. We're always going to need people who know how to do plumbing systems, electrical uh, systems, building uh, products, fixing machines. So there's plenty of uh, opportunity as long as you have some kind of a skill. So you graduate from high school, and if college is not right for you, that's that's fine. But you need to do something to get a skill so that you're able to contribute to the economy. Well, I think that you you said something very important there. You said to get a skill. I see so many kids graduating from college with a degree that doesn't necessarily give them a skill. It's just a it's just a degree for a degree's sake. And I wonder, was that really worth two hundred thousand dollars? What you just did there? No, it wasn't. And look, uh, I, I like people to pursue their their interests. But some of these things are not going to lead to a marketable degree. Um, what you should do is get a degree that's marketable. There's enough free electives in virtually every program that you're doing. You can pursue whatever interest you want to pursue. But to get a, a degree in, in something uh, that really nobody is going to hire you for um, is really counterproductive, and it's very expensive. So I, I agree with you. I think the colleges... Uh, have to be a little more focused on uh, providing students with degrees that will enable them to be successful uh, in the rest of their career. I, uh, I'm i already seeing that I'm going to regret uh, having you only on for one segment because there's so much we can talk about here, Michael. But let's move on to the economy. Prior okay. to the pandemic hitting uh, really in earnest in March of this year, uh, the U.S. economy was enjoying an unprecedented level of success. It kind of all came to a screeching halt. Talk a little bit about where we were, where we went in the depths of all of this, and where you think we're going to be. So you bring up a good point. January and February were so strong, it looked like this was going to be the best growth year in decades. We haven't seen um, better than 3% annual growth since 2005. We haven't seen better than 4% annual growth since the year 2000. I thought, based on January and February's numbers, we were going to end up in a 35 to 4% growth range until this virus completely shut the economy down. And from the middle of March to the end of April, the economy tanked, and it tanked badly. The middle of March was so bad, it dragged down the whole first quarter, and April was so bad, it really dragged down the second quarter. However, starting uh, because uh, President Trump and Congress worked on the stimulus package, which is both a good idea and a bad idea, by the way, but since they um, put out the stimulus uh, package, the economy on May 1st, once we started to uh, open things up again, began to grow very rapidly. Um, Historically, the, the best month in adding jobs we've ever had was about 1.5 million jobs in a, in a month. That was the best. Uh, it was uh, under the Reagan administration. Well, in May, 
Now, we, we come way down, that's true, but the idea is how quickly are we going to come back? Well, in May, we added 2.8 million jobs in one month, nearly doubling the prior record. In June, we added 4.6 million jobs, almost doubling the record from May. Uh, in July, 1.8 million. In August, 1.4 million. So the recovery is very uh, strong. We call it a V-shaped recovery. The economy went down quickly, but it's bouncing back uh, very quickly. Now, there are some signs that the V-shape is starting to flatten a little bit. Um, and if uh, Congress comes up with another stimulus package, and again, that's both a good idea and a bad idea, but if they come up with another stimulus package, and I have a feeling in the next week or two, they might compromise with something. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I, I think so. Uh, that will bring the economy back. Even if they don't do that, um, if some of these governors in states like um, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, California, Michigan, uh, uh, Washington, Oregon, if those governors would reopen their states like the rest of the country is doing, the economy would come back even more. But I'm very optimistic. You're going to see a growth rate number, and President Trump touts this. Uh, you're going to see a growth rate number for the, the third quarter uh, GDP. The, the number will be released the last week of October. I figure it'll be in about the 20 to 22 percent growth range, by far the best ever. Some economists think it'll be even higher than that, perhaps as high as uh, 30 percent. But the economy is now, there was a, a steep drop. And again, I want to emphasize that. But the speed of the recovery is very rapid. We're coming back very strongly. Um, and I think that the growth will continue into the fourth quarter, assuming by early next year that we get this virus under control. Uh, I think, and I agree with the president, that I think next year, 2021, we'll see probably the highest growth we've seen since the year 2000. We have uh, a lot of places that are still um, somewhat closed. I'm in New York. You mentioned my state, and you're absolutely right. Uh, we are still kind of closed here, which I don't get, um, but but we are. Um, how, how do you how do you comfort people, and particularly this millennial group that we started talking, started in a discussion talking about? How do we comfort them and give them some hope that yeah, this is temporary. The economy is going to pick up. You're going to be able to find a job, uh, and things will be okay. Yeah, I think we just have to tell them that. Say, look, uh, the, we've lived through things like this before. We've lived through things that um, may be, from an economic standpoint, worse than what we're going through uh, now, and we will rebound. Uh, things operate in cycles. We're at a down cycle now. But the data from May, June, July, and August all points to the economy growing. And um, if you just sort of walk around, you're starting to see a bunch of help wanted signs pop up. I talk to some small business people who actually tell me they're having trouble getting yeah. their employees to come back to yeah. uh, work. Uh, some of that has to do with the stimulus package, adding so much to their unemployment uh, check. But uh, the economy is, is opening up. There are jobs being created. Uh, so just hang in there a little bit longer. By the end of the year, I think the economy will be doing much, much uh, better. As I said, the third quarter will be good. I think the fourth quarter will be good. And next year, everybody should be able to get um, a pretty good job. So just hang in there, get yourself prepared. 
So make sure you have a skill or try to learn as much as you can so you're in a position to contribute when the jobs uh, become available. But look, you're, you're young. You have a long life ahead of you. Uh, let's just get through this. We'll treat it as a learning experience. It will make us better people in the long run. And let's move forward. And uh, once the economy is ready for us, we'll be ready for the economy. I want to ask you about two different things that we just went through. And then, sadly, we're going to be out of time here. Um, One of them was the shutdowns. In retrospect, is it your opinion that uh, that was a case of what needed to be done got done? Or was it a case of the the cure was worse than the disease? This is a very difficult question because no matter what you do, you're going to lose. Uh, you open up too soon, people get sick, you, you lose. You stay, you open up too late, uh, the economy goes into a severe recession, people's health suffers from that, you end up losing. So it's a very difficult question. Um, however, I live in New Jersey. Um, northern part of the state had a very serious problem. The problem, I think the governor imposed the rules for the entire part of the state. I live in Atlantic County, uh, just down beach from Atlantic City. Uh, since the virus started, we've only had about 3,500 cases and only about 245 people die. Cape May County, which is south of here, another resort community, um, I think their total deaths are only about 83. Uh, and so the problem was the, the governor shut down the entire state because the northern part of the state had a uh, problem. It's going to have severe impact on the uh, South Jersey resort economy from Atlantic City all the way down to Wildwood uh, and Cape May. So, so um, I, I appreciate that the government had a, uh, the governor had a very difficult decision. I think he erred uh, in forcing the policy for North Jersey onto the entire state. I suspect. You might get some of that in New York State, too. New York City had a problem, but I don't know that the problem was as bad in the rest of the state, yet the governor imposes uh, rules that apply to everybody. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I also want to ask you about the stimulus. Um, As a fiscal conservative, I was... Torn, as you as you kind of put it, uh, with this stimulus stimulus package, I recognized the need for the government to do something for the people that it basically forced out of work or forced to close their businesses and lose their livelihood. Something had to be done. But at the same time, I think what we're up to at this point about four trillion dollars borrowed this year just to handle the COVID situation. Um, and I, maybe maybe my numbers include what's coming. I don't, I don't remember. But it's something like $4 trillion. That's the size of the annual budget, which we already can't pay for. Yeah. Uh, so when I talked about the stimulus package previously, I said it was both a good thing and a bad thing. So it's a good thing. It's stimulated. And you bring up what the bad part is. Um, the, the deficit for this year is up to about $3.3 trillion. Uh, if they add another trillion in stimulus package and the president's trying to hold it to a trillion, the House of Representatives want to go up in the two, two and a half range, the deficit will be even even larger. So why is that a, uh, a problem? The, the public debt, which is the total of all deficits over time, the public debt prior to this year was $23 trillion. Now, we just added another three or four uh, to it. So we're now up to the 26, 27 trillion range, and who knows what the next stimulus bill is going to be. That'll add to that. 
So is that a problem? Well, most economists would say if the public debt is less than one year's GDP, you're okay. If it starts getting above one year's GDP, it's a problem. One year's GDP is only about 20, 21 trillion, and we're up to 27 or so in, in debt. So it is going to be a big problem. The interest expenses, which are four to 500 billion a year, have to be paid, and interest rates are very low now. Eventually, that gets rolled over at higher interest rates, so there's going to be more interest payments we have to pay. Two other things you're, you're worried about. Uh, part of the deficit was financed not by selling bonds to the public, but by selling bonds that the Federal Reserve bought, which means they essentially print up money, expand the money supply to do that. That could be um, very inflationary. So we have to uh, watch out for that. The other thing is, as the, gov- as the government uh, continues to borrow money, so what's going to happen is the Federal Reserve over the next few years says, look, we're going to pare down our balance sheet, which means they're going to sell off some of the bonds that they bought to finance the deficit this year. Now, as they do that, people buy government bonds. It means there's less available for business to to borrow. So economists would say, with that large of a debt, you're going to crowd business out of the debt markets. People will buy government bonds over corporate bonds. Corporations can't raise debt uh, financing. That's going to tend to slow economic growth. So you could run into a problem of inflation and slower growth. That's what we had back in the late 1970s, what we call the stagflation, stagnant economy and inflation. So I'm not forecasting that that's going to happen. Um, I still think um, I'm hopeful that after the next presidential election that they start to look at this deficit and debt uh, problem. But if we don't do anything about it, it could lead to some severe inflation and slow growth uh, problems in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Sadly, that's all the time we have. Michael, like I said, I I regret not having you on for the entire show, but maybe we can get you back sometime. Maybe as some of this shakes out, we'll know some answers about this next stimulus, next round of stimulus. We'll have some other things uh, decided in the next few weeks, so hopefully you'll agree to come back. It uh, will be my pleasure, JB. I look forward to it. Is there any place that uh, folks can go to maybe follow your work or keep tabs on what you're up to? Sure. So my Twitter account, uh, and I, I, I write columns regularly. Uh, my Twitter account is at mbusler. That's at M-B-U-S-L-E-R. If you have a Facebook page, search for Funding Democracy. Funding Democracy, and I have a page there called Funding Democracy, the Economics of Freedom I write regular columns, and all my views are there. I'd be very happy if anybody followed me. Thank you to our first guest of the evening, Dr. Michael Bussler, uh, professor of finance at Stockton University. It was a very interesting discussion. I could have uh, talked to him all night. We will have him back. But I'm also very excited to have our next guest on the program. David Corey is an author. He's got a new book out. It's a supernatural thriller. It's Illyria. I, did I say that right? I, <laughs> I hesitate every time I go to say the title. You nailed it. All right. It. All right. Yay me. All right. Anyway, David, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, it's great to be here, man. Thank you so much. So let's start out by learning a little bit about the book. What's the Absolutely. book? What's the book about? Well, uh, <laughs> Hilaria is definitely supernatural. I can give you that. Uh, we've got, we have vampires, we have witches, we have giants, we have uh, actual aliens as well. We have demons, we have angels, uh, we have 
We have just about every kind of, of of being that you could possibly have in this book, along with humans as well. So, uh, yes, it's very supernatural. Uh, the book is is you know I, I I would I would honestly call it really yes, it's a supernatural thriller, but it's also a cautionary tale. I think it it it. It, it basically talks about kind of what's happening right now is that is that we've got we've got a group of people who uh, who have felt that they have been put down for hundreds of years and it's true they have been they are they are seeking they are seeking what what they feel they deserve which is which is the exact the the same type of freedoms that you and I, that that you and I are looking for and that's in this book is is what's basically going on and it's about a young man about a seventeen year old young man. Learning the truth about himself. It's it's learning the truth and doing everything uh, that you can possibly do to correct the mistakes of the past, to correct the mistakes of our sins of our fathers, if you will. Okay, so if this actually uh, has some relevance to what we're seeing happening around us today, I imagine it. You didn't start writing this this year. You probably started this a while ago. So were you were you predicting what was about to come, or were you just envisioning, you know, a struggle, and therefore it just kind of ties into what we're seeing happening around us today? You know, it's 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 interesting that that you would ask that. Yeah, this this idea came up about three and a half. Uh, uh, just under four years ago was when I started working on this idea, really starting to put this idea together. And did I honestly think that we would be where we are at right now at that point in time? Uh, no. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> no. anybody could have no. predicted it. Right? I, I, I would have. I would have. I, I, I literally probably would have cried if, if, <laughs> if I. Yeah, you know, to 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 think to think that only four years ago, the different what what a difference only four years ago makes. Uh, I mean, is just I'm I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> I mean, seriously, four years. Uh, I don't so think it, you have to go back was, four years. I think you can go back eight months and say, "Oh my God, this is a different world we're living in." I mean, completely different world. Just eight months ago. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it is just, it's one of those things where you, 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 <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you cannot prepare yourself for yeah. for anything. No, we're in uncharted right. territory here. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, <laughs> this is, this is, uh, yeah. I, I, I literally most of the time I'm not a speechless person, uh, but about, but about what has happened in 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 not just our country but but just around the I, I mean, yeah, it's befuddling. Remove remove <laughs> the uh, you know social commentary out of the the picture for a second and talk about the supernatural stuff. What inspired you? I mean, you met you basically said that there's there are many many forms of su- supernatural creatures in this particular book. What inspired you to write and include all of that? You know, I, it's one of these things where you know we look, we look around that we have we have different religions all over we all over this globe. We 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 might we might poo-poo some of them. Uh, there are people that hate Christianity. There are people that hate Judaism. There are people that hate Islam. There are people that hate Hinduism. There are people that hate everything. And what I wanted to show was basically one world is that what what this group, all of these creatures, all of these beings and all of these humans are trying to do is unite as one. They are trying to pull it together, bring it together to save not only the earth, but to save 
the universe, to save everything, to save mankind, to save vampire kind, to to save witch kind, to save everybody, to save not just them physically, but them spiritually, their 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 souls. Yeah. You know, who who, I, I who mean, are they? I, I assume, and I'm not an author, and I honestly don't read a lot of novels. I read uh, a lot of stuff that I have to read for this particular show. It's about all I have time course. for anymore. However, um, you know, I assume most most stories, whether they're novels or uh, movies or whatever they happen to be, whatever form they're in, have a hero, have a villain. There might not be one person; it might be a group of people. Uh, either way, who are the heroes and villains in the book? Your heroes in this in this book, uh, you find out pretty quickly who they are. Um, and um, it, I will say this: that it is hard sometimes to decipher between good and bad. It's hard to know because it, at one point you might think, "Oh my God, this guy or this woman is evil beyond evil," and actually may wind up being completely different from what the reader is expecting. But our our main protagonist, our, our main hero in this book is uh what what readers will start off to believe is seventeen year old Cameron. And Cameron is the hero. Um he is excuse me, uh, let me take that back. Cameron is one of the many heroes in this book. And um you like I said, uh, there there are probably about four to five heroes that I would say heroes in this book. And uh so many <laughs> uh so many evil entities, so many evil people to 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 talk about that we we could be here all night. Um it, it's it's one of these things that <clears throat> just kind of how I think you know, you you see each character. You know, to to someone else other than me, other than the the writer, someone might see somebody who I see is evil beyond evil at the moment as a good person later on somewhere down the book, and they might that man, woman, or child might be able to say, "Wow, you know, uh, this guy seems like he might really be a good guy. This guy seems like, oh wow, they're going to be really evil. This woman seems like they're going to be really evil." Um, but, uh, you know, the one thing that I can't do with this is that uh, there is so much with these characters to talk about that if I, if I even slightly, uh, give, you know, I, I can talk a little bit about them, but to, to talk too much about them definitely gives it, gives, starts okay. to give the book away. Okay. Are there, um, you, you, you threw a whole bunch of examples of supernatural creatures at me and I, th- yeah. I think you mentioned vampires. Oh Yeah. Is this is this at its core maybe a vampire story? Would you say or not? I would say that it is an homage to uh, writers like Bram Stoker, to writers like Anne Rice, um, to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, to uh, C.S. Lewis, to uh, uh, um, J.K. Rowling, uh, Stephen King. It is my homage to. The uh, great authors who created the great monster books of 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 different generations who have created those those uh, if you will uh, uh, like like Dracula like uh, Interview with a Vampire like right. the Vampire Lestat like uh, you know like uh, like. Uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, adventure. It's uh, it's uh, it is it is 
Hilarious insanity on every page, and it literally starts on the first page. Hilarious? Did you say hilarious insanity? Uh, Illyria. Oh, Illyria is, in, is insanity. Illyria is insanity gotcha. from the first page to the last one. Um, how would you? How would you? You define? You you actually said kind of tips a hat or, or pays homage to, and you mentioned a list of very accomplished writers. Uh, oh, yes. In fact, probably you probably were looking at my list of favorite writers. Um, but I, how would you say your work difference differs from theirs? Um, I would say that I, <laughs> now, uh, minus Stephen King and Anne Rice, I my writing is extremely violent. Um, it, it's, I, I put, I put my, my R rating stuff into my violence. I, uh, you know, my, my romance or my, uh, sexual situations are, they're strong, but they're minimal. Uh, the sexual situations, the romance, stuff like that would be, would be okay for like a, a freshman, sophomore in high school. Uh, you know, as long as the parents don't care about the violence. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I try to stay as far away from foul language as I can. I may use a word here and there, but, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I would say that I would say that the violence is probably, uh, where, where I, where I would tend to, to go a little heavier than, than even somebody like Anne Rice and Stephen King. So it's pretty ultra violent. And but you you kind of define this as a young adult supernatural th- thriller, yes, right? I have. Yeah. Yes, I I still believe that it is still a young adult supernatural thriller, even though it is rather violent. Yes, would not so would not so young adults like myself enjoy it. Oh, I think you'd love it. Yeah, so it's probably for everybody then. Everybody, oh, but, yeah. but kids, I would imagine. I, my my feeling is, is that I probably I I would not read this to my uh, I wouldn't read it to my eight year old, but my thirteen year old is reading it right now. Oh, nice. So. Is this your, is this your first book? Uh, no, this is actually my second. Okay. Uh, we have a first book out uh, entitled Texas Heat. Uh, sadly, it did not. Uh, it, it hasn't done well, but also at the same time, right now it is going through a massive rewrite <laughs> to the point of where it's actually going to be entitled something different. It's entitled the curve actually. And we're hoping to have it out by February of 2021. So, uh, uh, but that would be the, that would be the other novel that I have out right now that is actually still being sold under the, the title of Texas heat, but is soon to be pulled probably within the next two months. Tell me about uh, your life. Um, as you, worked up to being a published author. Uh, from what I understand of you, you uh, started writing in a ra- rather early age. Yes, I did. I started writing poetry, um, gosh, I tell everybody 12, but I would actually have to say that I probably started writing uh, when my family and I moved uh, to uh, to uh, Europe in 1985. And that would have been, uh, I would have been 10 years old at the time. So uh, we moved to Europe. We lived in Paris for about a year uh, France for about a year, and then we moved to uh, Germany, where we lived in a small town by the name of Göttingen, Germany, uh, for another about eight and a half, nine months. So we were there for literally right around two years, and it was around that time that I uh, that I began writing. Actually, do you uh, when you go into when you when you sit down to write, do you put yourself into a character's frame of mind, one of the characters in the book, maybe? What's your process? You know, it's interesting. Um, when I sit down, the first thing that I do before I ever start to write anything is I always write up an outline. 
Um, and I have to have it because if I don't, then I will go in every direction that you could possibly imagine, even directions that haven't been <laughs> invented yet. I will figure out ways to invent them, and I will go in those directions if I don't have something guiding me. Um, so I, the first thing that I do before I do anything else is I sit down and I will write out my outline, and I will say, okay, you know, Roman numeral one, letters A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on down the line. But, um, you know, it... it, it uh, <laughs> um, when when I when I write normally um it's funny because I'll, I'll I'll usually use like a a journalist or a or a sports writer or a or a uh a screenwriter or a or a or an award-winning novelist as my main character so so things that I'm familiar with now unfortunately I'm not an award-winning novelist yet but I can imagine what that would feel like to be there. So, you know, I like to put myself in situations, you know, I, I call it faux, uh, gonzo journalism, you know, and gonzo journalism was invented by the great Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. But what I do is not really, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's not gonzo journalism, but it's taking yourself and making yourself the main character in your story. But my stories are not real stories. His were. Um, so it's, uh, that's why I call it faux gonzo is because, you know, I like to try to put myself in as, 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 a, as the main character or a, or at least one of the major characters in my stories, whether or not I'm male or whether or not I'm female. Um, so it, that's, that's the way I do it is that I always try to write from a perspective of somebody that I would know their perspective. And, um, I, my wife is always asking me, she was like, why do you always do that? And I was like, you know, I said, I, said, I, I really don't know. I, I said, I think I just do it because it, it feels comfortable. And, you know, I was like, and I, and I do step away from my comfort zones, uh, uh, especially in my poetry and my screenwriting and my teleplay writing. But with my novels, I'm very particular. It's really weird, actually. Now that you mention, it, it's not something that I've actually really ever put much thought to. I, I, I actually, and just now, you, you made me think about that. So that was really cool. I, I, I never really thought about that before. And, and, and I guess that, uh, I, you know, I stepping out of my comfort zone and writing uh, my novels uh, is something that, you know, I feel like I, I step out of a comfort zone for my readers, but for myself, I. I've yet to been. I've yet to be able with my with my novels to take myself out of that comfort zone, which is really fascinating. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, obviously this obviously this book uh, focuses a lot on the supernatural, as you mentioned. Yeah. So many different characters related to the supernatural. Is that something that, apart from writing this story, you've been interested in? Yeah, actually, yes. You know, I mean, uh, supernatural films, uh, reading books about. Uh, you know, haunted buildings in the United States. I, I've 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 visited quite a few. I've I've uh, I've got a buddy of mine in uh, Seattle, Washington, who is a uh, uh, big time uh, producer out there and has his recording studio. And uh, the place is haunted. Um, I've I've actually seen it myself. I've and it is freaky as all hell. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I apologize for that. But it, oh my, oh my, oh my God! It sends even when I think about it today, it sends chills up and down my spine. Wow. Um, but uh, yes, I love it. I, I the supernatural is 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 
is I love trippy. I love crazy. I love out there. And I love things that, that people want to say they believe in, but in actuality really don't. And I really actually do believe in the total supernatural. I believe in ghosts. I believe in spirits. I believe in angels and I believe in demons. So it's, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they are out there <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, there, there are so many stories to tell in that genre. I mean, you could, I mean, you know, have you had, have uh, you had, have you had your own experience? Crazy. Have you had your What's own, that? have you had any of your own paranormal experiences? Oh yeah. Like I said, uh, at my friend's studio in Seattle, uh, twice I have, uh, I, I actually crashed there a couple of, a couple of times when I went to visit. And then when I lived there, I'd go there and hang out with a lot of the guys that would go in there and record and we'd, we'd party a little bit and I'd wind up crashing out there at that time. And yes, uh, numerous times. Uh, yeah. Like I said, <laughs> uh, freaked me out. Um, uh, really, really crazy when it happens. Yeah, it is. Um, and, uh, it just, it just, uh, just, yeah. Um, <laughs> do you have uh, um, Do you have a uh, a particular character in this book that you relate to more personally than others? You know, it's it's funny. Um, I would say that both Cameron and um, Ivanya, who is actually the woman that he falls for, um, I, both my myself is in both of those characters so very much. Um, and, uh, I love those characters, uh, deeply and desperately. And if I said that I had to love more, one more than the other, it would be Ivanya. And, uh, once people read all the way to the end of that, they find the the loyalty that she has, <laughs> you know, like there, there's, there's, there's not much higher loyalty that, that an individual could have than what she has. And her loyalty is, her loyalty is true. It's real. Um, and it's, 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 it's to the death. I mean, she is, she is, she is someone that, that, that this, that this person that, that falls for her, uh, her and Cameron, um, Cameron knows just right off the bat, the second that he meets her, that, that he never has to worry about anything with her and that, and she, that, that she will, she will fight to the death for this man and that her loyalty is, will never fade. And and that is something that is very huge to me. Loyalty is an extremely important aspect uh, in life for me. Um, and if you have no loyalty, then you really have no honor. Um, and uh, that is really, truly what uh, I think life is really all about. It's about loyalty. It's about love. It's about honor. Yeah. And it's about honoring that loyalty and honoring that honor and that love. Yeah. Uh, good points. Um, I, I am not an author. Uh, and in fact, Probably the longest thing I've ever ever written filled up one of those blue, blue test books. Um, so I don't really know, but I've heard from other authors that the process of writing, especially something that's very, you know, comes from very deep within inside you, uh, is also a, pro- a process of self awareness and self realization. Did you find that to be the case with this book? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was funny because, uh, like I said, I, I do my outlines, um, and as I was writing the outline, I, I didn't feel. You know, I didn't I didn't feel those things right off the bat, but as I started writing this and I started putting myself into into these situations, into these um into these into these emotions that Cameron is going through and especially the things that he finds out along the way, just 
everything. I mean, you know, there you know, there are people that 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 are out there that are that are that are weaker than others that that don't have the ability to handle certain things uh the way that other people can and 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 in that and in that sadness sometimes you know, we might we might see somebody commit suicide. That is exactly what what this guy <laughs> you know, a, a weaker person probably would not be able to handle what he is going through and he handles it with he handles it with with aplomb he handles it with 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 respect to to everything that he has to to his family to everything he respects every bit of it and he's loyal and he's loyal and he's he just wants to know who where his true loyalties lie because that's where that is his that is that is his his uh his his crutch to bear throughout this book is that everybody pretty much everybody minus about four different characters in this book are lying to him throughout and he starts to realize that you know, around the middle of the book, and he just doesn't know how to handle things. He doesn't know which way to go. He doesn't know which way to bend. He doesn't know which end is up for him until we get very close to the end of that book, and he starts to realize, and things start to fall into place for this guy, um, which leads us directly into the second book, which I am working on now. So, <laughs> well, that answers that question. Um, you, uh, you, you aren't a new writer. You've been writing for quite a while. However, this is your second book. You're re, you're re-editing and rewriting the first book uh, to re-release it. So, in a way, you're kind of new to that part of it. In the sense that you finally are seeing some success from that work. What is your advice to other new writers? Do you have any uh, words of wisdom for people who are looking to do this? Maybe yeah. following your footsteps. Yes, I do. Uh, authors out there, unless you are editing your own work, I beg you, research, research, research before you hand your project over to somebody to edit. Do not pay outlandish prices for that first book, even though you're going to want to. Uh, I've made that mistake, and it's cost me. And it's cost that sounds yeah. That sounds very personal. Uh, do you mind sharing? You know, not well, details I, per se, but what, what do we, those of us who aren't writers might not know what you're talking about. Um, I am not one of those writers who is capable of editing his own work because you just you know I with me when you when I try to edit my own work I don't find too many errors and of course I am not the perfect. Uh, my punctuation is never perfect. My spelling is darn near. 100% all the time, but, um, you know, other, you should always have somebody proofing your work. You should always have an editor there and, and, and don't expect that editor to, to do it for free, you know, unless you're going to a, to a student in, in college. And even then they're there, that's how they make their money. So you do have to pay them right. and you want to pay them and you want to pay them a good price because you want them to do a good job on your book. Uh, with Texas heat, <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, geez. Um, Sounds like you may have gotten a, you may have gotten a bit of an education, probably an expensive one. Uh, it, it was it was extremely expensive, you know. And I mean, I I paid for a really expensive education for college and and for uh, for for graduate uh, for graduate yeah. school and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, you know, Texas Heat was a was about a twelve thousand dollar mistake, and Elyria. 
uh, cost us about uh, $5,500 as well. And there were some major issues uh, with the book as well uh, once we got the book back, uh, which, you know, never got, never got touched, never got fixed, never, you know, and it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's one of those things mm. that, you know, it, it, it's going to happen. It It is. And it is. And, you know, for, for you authors out there that never have that problem, I, I, I am, I'm envious. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 I makes my stomach hurt, but I'm envious. Um, and, and, and of course I don't wish any ill will on any authors or anything out there. I, I want y'all to have your work done properly and perfectly every single time, because if we're paying for it, then we should be getting what we pay for. And if we're not, then we're getting ripped off. And, 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 uh, the person that did that job, their person, their name should be mud. I'm sorry. That might be cruel, but that's yeah. just my honest opinion about it because that is a lot of money that people pay sure. to have, you know, to have books and stuff like that, to have that stuff edited. Um, so it, yeah, it, it's very personal. Um, you know, my, uh, <laughs> my mother and my father are, are and my wife are, are my three biggest supporters. Um, and, uh, my mom and dad have been pushing my work and pushing my work and pushing my work and pushing my work literally for years. Um, they have paid for editor after editor after editor to come in and, you know, um, and I actually do have a third book. It is called Supernova, but it has never seen the light of day uh, because it is a basic sex romp. And they're, uh, the, the main part of the story is a what if, basically. It's a, it's a what if as to what would have happened uh, if two possibilities, if Kurt Cobain had actually been murdered or if Kurt Cobain had faked his own death in 1994. Ooh. Um, I think so, you may have yeah, just perked it's, up it's, a lot of ears. crazy, crazy, insane book that I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get the rights uh, to, to for anyone to allow it to go out because uh, the, 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 the semblance of the characters in this book to characters li- living or actually one that's now dead um, – or so, or or that's what we all think anyway. Um, is is there's just no way I will I will be sued off my butt. So I'm I'm doing some things to it right now that won't have me sued off my butt. Even though the idea of it is really really phenomenal, it's probably the best book that I've ever written in my life. It's also 585 pages. It is wow. utter insanity. Um, wow. And it is it is a life that I I actually <laughs> I I grew up in that life I I saw Nirvana numerous times when I was in high school in the nineties and and I met the boys and and I I I actually could say that that I that I spent some time um at in backstage at some of their shows getting to know them because they were so very absurdly kind to me. Um, shockingly well, kind. Um, um, we're almost out of time here, David. Uh, one of our chat room members asked if the book was available in Audible or maybe some other ebook form. Um, uh, it is available. Uh, you can download it. 
It's downloadable. We do not have a recorded version yet. We are getting the actors and actresses together right now, as a matter of fact, to do that. And we hope to have something by Christmas. And where else is the, I'm assuming the printed, the printed version is available now, yes? Yeah, you can pick it up on Amazon. Perfect. And uh, barnesandnoble.com as well. And my final question would have been, what are you working on next? But you've already told us that, so uh, <laughs> you beat me to it. Uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm working on the sequel to Illyria. I am working on a uh, television series called The Normals. And I am uh, working on some things for Supernova as well at the Perfect. time. So those are uh, three projects that that I hope to have rolling here uh you know, by the uh, end or early part of 2021. Uh, David, where can people follow your work and uh, keep tabs on what you're up to? Uh, you can check me out. Hit me up um, at uh, David Corey uh, at gmail.com. Hit me up at uh, uh that's sadly right now, since everything else is down at the moment, that is pretty much it. You can hit me up um, and uh, at my hit me up at my at my uh, at my Gmail account, and I can send I can send anyone any information that they need to know because right now all of my pages are down because they're all being worked on. Uh, but davidcorey.com is active, right? Yes, and, and, davidcorey at gmail.com. Yeah, and but your website davidcorey.com. Oh, yes, that, that one is also available as well, too. Yeah, and by the way, Corey is spelled K-O-U-R-I, just so everybody knows. Uh, David, yes. thanks so much for sharing um, what it has to be your baby at this point with us, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. Uh, I loved it, man. It was great. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.